0: A heads up, this episode has stories of abortion and pregnancy loss. I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect.
1: I don't have any particular pride in the original Roe v. Wade decision. I mean, I never really thought about the viability of viability.
0: Last week, we heard from a judge and a clerk. Two of the men— who, 50 years ago, tried to answer the question of abortion in America. I just thought, you can't abolish her right, but you can limit it. And they settled on a compromise, one that was flawed from the start, the viability line. Now, the Supreme Court has thrown out that line. And lawmakers across the country are scrambling to write new lines, new rules for when it's legal to get an abortion or if it's legal at all. Today on More Perfect, chapter two of our two-part series. What if abortion law wasn't shaped by men at the Supreme Court? What if it was written by people who know what it's like to be pregnant?
2: I, I don't think people see me as a person that would have had an abortion. I resent
3: anybody else trying to define what happened to me.
1: I think I always go back to... We have to look at what drives someone to have an abortion, and why is that person at 26, 27, 28 weeks desperate to have an abortion? What are the circumstances? That's the key.
0: Stories of women who fought battles within their own bodies and who now find themselves on the front lines of the next legal battle over abortion in America.
4: More Perfect is supported by NetSuite. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind, teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. If this sounds familiar, you should know these three numbers. 36,0251. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle, the cloud financial system streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com slash more perfect that's netsuite.com slash more perfect to get your own kpi checklist
3: at radio lab we love nothing more than nerding out about science neuroscience chemistry
4: but but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories stories about policing or politics country
5: music hockey sex bugs. (laughs) of bugs,
3: <laughs> regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers
0: and hopefully make you see the world anew.
3: Radio Lab Adventures on the Edge of What We Think We Know,
0: wherever you get your podcasts. This is More Perfect. I'm Julia Longoria. For every case the Supreme Court decides, members of the public, people not involved in the case, can submit additional arguments for either side. They're called amicus briefs. The court usually sees about a dozen per case. But in Dobbs, there were more than 140. Amicus briefs allow the justices to try on new arguments for size. They could be the basis of tomorrow's decisions. And one brief in particular stood out to reporter Gabrielle Burbet.
5: Good morning. Hi, is this Mary? This is Mary. Mary Browning is a lawyer who wrote a brief on behalf of the Justice Foundation.
2: I think the best way to sum it up is, when does life begin? It begins at the beginning. It's an anti-abortion
5: Christian organization. And in one sense, her argument wasn't very surprising. She wants to move the viability line all the way back
2: to conception. The person is a person no matter how small. The person is a person no matter which side of the uterine wall.
5: Her reasoning is that with technology like in vitro fertilization, you can make even an embryo in a petri dish viable. And this kind of argument is gaining momentum in the courts. It's called personhood. The idea that a fetus from the moment of conception has constitutional rights— banning all abortions.
2: What made you get connected with the Justice Foundation? I really got connected with the Justice Foundation from my own experience as having been a person that has experienced abortion. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I I didn't know that. Um, it would be easier not to say anything, but I don't know that it's There's wisdom in that.
5: Yeah. Mary felt, in order for me to understand how someone who has had an abortion becomes anti-abortion, I had to understand the story of what happened to her as a teenager. I was 18. I had just graduated high school. It was 1976. She was living in small-town Missouri with Catholic parents. And
2: at 18 years old, she was engaged. I was getting married to an abusive alcoholic and I found out a week before our wedding that I was pregnant. When I called him, he said, well, you need to have an abortion. And I think I was surprised that he said that. But I couldn't imagine going home and talking to my parents by myself. And so I just said, okay. Mary felt conflicted. But I think at the time, what was being said, it was you just have a clump of cells that doesn't really matter. Just three
5: years earlier, the Supreme Court had decided Roe v. Wade and made abortion legal up until the viability line.
2: The U.S. Supreme Court said it was okay, so it must be okay. So Mary booked the appointment, and five days
5: after her wedding, she had an abortion.
2: During the abortion, I dissociated.
5: She says, Afterwards, the doctor scolded her. She thought she was 12 weeks along, but he told her it was more like 16 weeks and that she should have known better. That haunted her.
2: I felt shame that I was having sex. I felt shame that I was pregnant. I felt shame that I'd had an abortion. So I thought I would, could kind of hide the secret and never have to deal with it. I sort of put it in a compartment and closed the door in my brain. And it's like, okay, that problem was taken care of. Now I'm going to live my life.
5: She eventually left her abusive husband, went to law school, and became a lawyer. She practiced family law and specialized in child abuse and neglect cases. And that whole time, she kept her abortion a
2: secret. I didn't talk to people about it. For years, it wasn't like I had girlfriends and I talked to my girlfriends about it. I didn't tell anybody.
5: But as she was living her life, Mary says the shame and the grief she felt about her abortion, they caught up with her, and she felt alone.
2: There was a lot of talk on the one side about how good it is and how it's the right thing, but there wasn't much talk about, no, I had one and I regretted it. What was the turning point for you? Well, I think when I met other women that were talking about having had an abortion, that's when I had become connected with the Justice Foundation, where women that have been hurt by abortions have come forward.
5: The Justice Foundation doesn't just litigate anti-abortion cases— It also offers support to people who regret their abortions. Mary got involved with the foundation, and she met other people who also regretted their abortions. Together, she said they talked about what they
2: lost or who. Yes, most of us have named our babies. We have an idea of how old they would be. Mm -hmm. You know, I had an abortion, and it was a mistake. Regardless of if our Supreme Court said this wasn't recognized as a human or a person, I know this was my baby. Hmm. I know that now.
5: Regret after abortion has been a major focus of the anti-abortion movement. In the 2000s, Justice Kennedy even wrote about it in a Supreme Court opinion. And as a reaction, talk of regret around abortion became taboo in the pro-choice movement even though studies show that the vast majority of people who've had abortions, more than 95 percent, do not regret it,
2: even if they felt grief. I get there are women that have had abortions that don't regret it. I'm just saying that's not me.
5: The personhood movement gave Mary kind of an answer to her grief
2: and her regret. My child, my baby, was 16 weeks old when he was aborted. It wasn't like he was a clump of cells, and it didn't matter what happened to him.
5: It struck me how Mary found community in the anti-abortion movement, because she didn't think anyone in the pro-abortion movement could understand her experience. But as I was doing my reporting, I found someone in the abortion rights movement who provided care for people in Mary's situation, and said some things that actually reminded me of her.
1: In the um, recovery rooms, we have notebooks for people to write their thoughts and feelings.
5: Dr. Shelley Sella is an OBGYN. I
1: had somewhere a list of... I had some quotes.
5: She's retired now, but um, she's kept copies of what some of her patients wrote in those notebooks. okay.
1: Dear God, please forgive me. I'm not in a good position to have a baby. I know I made the right choice. No regrets. Someone else wrote, May God forgive us all, for we are humans. We fall short sometimes. I'm a Catholic, and I'm not happy about the situation, but God gave us the ability to think, for us to use our judgment, and especially to be our own person it's easy to just think of it in black and white terms, but it doesn't work.
5: Dr. Sella is not just any abortion provider. For almost a decade, she was only one of four people in the country to openly provide abortions at any point in a pregnancy, even in the third trimester. When her patients would arrive, she'd ask them a question.
1: I ask patients how would you like me to describe this being inside you? And invariably, they say, baby.
5: Do you then see the fetus as how they see it? Do, Do you I
1: personify it? Then?
0: Based on how your patient yeah. sees it?
1: And that's an interesting question. If someone says, this is my baby, Tom, yeah, I guess I... Think of it as baby Tom. How she sees it is how I see it. This surprised me.
5: I hadn't heard an abortion provider say something like this before. And abortion rights scholars I talked to often insisted on using the word fetus. But here was Dr. Sella, an all-trimester abortion provider, one of the most pro-abortion people I'd ever spoken to, saying baby in the context of abortion
1: you can have feelings you can have feelings toward the fetus or baby whatever you're calling it and still know that it's the absolute right decision for you to have the abortion not does it look like a baby or does it look like a cotton ball or clump of tissue to me that's kind of denying the reality of our work I mean I think we have to acknowledge what we do
5: Dr. Sella says that when she was just starting out, the clinic she worked at looked like a bunker with high fences, guards, and metal detectors. She and her staff received countless death threats, and her mentor, Dr. George Tiller, was murdered while he was at church.
1: Dr. Tiller was religious and saw this work as God's work and as a moral imperative, and he was determined to provide that to women who needed care. But I but I think it was hard.
2: How did you feel?
1: I was very committed to the work. You can have feelings as the provider and still know this is the absolute right thing for this person who has come to me. And it's okay to acknowledge that sometimes it's sad and sometimes it's not, and and that's okay. It doesn't take away from the work or from the woman's right to have the abortion.
5: Like Mary, Dr. Sella has also been frustrated by the way the pro-choice movement has talked about abortion. It hasn't always aligned with her experience as a provider.
1: It's like, if you're pro-abortion, then it's 100% and You attach no emotion to it. Like, let's make it this nothing, this lifeless cardboard. But it's not.
5: Talking to these two people with opposite beliefs, I was surprised by how much they kept coming back to the same place.
2: Can we just agree on certain facts? Even though we may apply them differently or we may see the outcome differently, can we just say, this is a baby?
1: (laughs) Many people who have abortions don't think of it as a fetus. It's their baby.
2: Let's at least have language that we agree on.
5: Mary and Dr. Sella also agreed that the way Roe v. Wade tried to draw lines in a pregnancy was deeply misguided. I never thought it was a good decision
1: to begin with, actually.
2: When you look at viability and say that that is a compromise, it's not so much as when does life begin, but when are we as a society going to value the life? Where do
5: you think that Justice Blackman should have drawn that line instead?
1: Well, that's a great question.
2: At the time, Justice Blackman was saying, well, we don't really know when life begins, there's no need to make something so simple, complicated.
1: The whole structure they came up with is just too complicated.
5: But here, the two women diverge. For Dr. Sella,
1: A pregnancy is viable if it's wanted and accepted and embraced, and it's non-viable if it's rejected by the mother. Why did they do this? They screwed us all over.
5: So if not Roe and not viability, then what? Mary found her answer in the personhood movement, and the Supreme Court is probably more open now to ideas of personhood than perhaps any other time in U.S. history. But for Dr. Sella, the answer is less clear. She isn't a lawyer, and it made me wonder, who in the abortion rights movement is looking for a legal answer that could reflect her experience. We talked to someone working on an answer. For a very, very, very long time, the
6: abortion rights movement has truly wanted to ignore the fetus in any way it can. Two people,
5: actually.
3: What we're envisioning is a future, that abortion rights still acknowledge the fetus, and that's okay. That's after the break.
0: From WNYC Studios, this is More Perfect. I'm Julia Longoria. The second half of this episode requires a different kind of warning. We're gonna get wonky. We'll make it worth your while. Here's reporter Gabrielle Burbet.
5: Okay, so let's review for a moment. Last year, the Supreme Court threw out the viability line. And putting aside the chaos we're living in because of that— which is hard to do, some legal scholars who we talk to are weirdly sort of relieved because viability made no sense. They say now the creative solutions are endless. For people who believe in the right to an abortion, there's a pair of lawyers I talk to who've been thinking about this a lot. So we'll start with a tale of two pregnancies from these two legal scholars.
3: Jill Lenz, I am a professor of law at the University of Arkansas School of Law. And Greer Donnelly.
5: I'm a reproductive justice scholar. At the University of Pittsburgh. When Jill and Greer each got pregnant, they were in separate parts of the country. They did not know each other. Both were lawyers,
3: and both in their 30s. We found out it was a boy, which was just fantastic. What color did you paint the nursery room? It was like a seafoam green. Actually, it happened to be Father's Day, and I I put the car seat in the very day.
6: And that all happened probably two weeks before, a week before the scan, that we found out that things were going so wrong.
5: After both of them had prepared for their babies to arrive, both Jill and Greer's pregnancies went horribly wrong. For Jill, who lived in Texas at the time, A thing that so many pregnant people fear happened at almost nine months.
3: They couldn't find a heartbeat. The nurses all left the room and I just let out this scream. Her son was stillborn.
5: For Greer in Pittsburgh, the trouble came earlier in the pregnancy at the 20-week scan.
6: The doctor basically told us that... Our son had a pretty profound brain anomaly that was preventing brain tissue from forming. Greer is a cancer survivor, so her pregnancy was already considered high risk. The first thing the doctor said was that some people in this situation choose to have an abortion. And someone once told me that people faced with this decision can choose life for their child or they can choose peace, but they can't choose both. And what does it mean as a mother when you have to make that choice between those two things, right? When you want desperately to give your kid both of them. But, you know, for me and for many women who came before me, I chose peace. And, you know, in some sense felt like it was the only gift I could give him to not suffer in this world. Um, But it was also a gift
5: that came with profound pain for me. She had an abortion at 22 weeks. If you're comfortable with sharing, like, what did you do after?
6: I came home and, um, you know, I, I was in a really dark place for a while. The loss part of my abortion felt like I didn't know where to go. And the thing that was so strange about it was that I've been pro-choice my whole life and not just vaguely, right? I was actively involved in causes related to this issue when I was in law school. So I was not expecting to feel the kind of things I felt, like I was losing, you know, a potential child, a, a, like I felt like I was losing a son,
5: right? Like Mary from the personhood movement, like Dr. Sella, the abortion provider— like so many people who've lost a pregnancy, she did not feel this was a clump of cells. She was mourning her
6: baby. I remember someone sent me a book, and I know this person, right? This person is, is someone who supports abortion rights. And the book was um, <laughs> like, was clearly an anti-abortion book. Like, this is your baby, it's been your baby from the moment, you've, you've carried this baby your whole, its whole life. There was a part of me that was reading this with the emotional experience I had just been through, thinking, oh, yeah, like, this resonates.
5: She couldn't find this kind of comfort in the pro-choice literature she came across.
6: I was feeling this conflict within me. On the one hand, I was someone who had had an abortion of 22 weeks, right? So you can't go through that experience and not, or at least I didn't go through that experience and feel like people shouldn't have access to abortion. On the other hand, I also had never valued fetal life so much. Um, And that was the part where I felt very confused.
5: Over a thousand miles away, Jill, after her stillbirth experience, she was also conflicted.
3: When I walked out of the hospital, someone said to me we would get Caleb's death certificate in the mail. And in my head, I specifically thought, what about his birth certificate? Because I gave—I I literally just gave birth.
5: After Caleb was stillborn, Jill wanted a memorial birth certificate, which is something abortion rights groups have resisted. And when she wrote about the legal recognition of stillborns, her
3: work got a reaction. So something as simple as the language that I would use when writing about stillbirth especially, that could be threatening to abortion rights. For Greer in Pittsburgh, her
5: experience led her to write a paper which made the case that abortion should be a parental
6: right. But that necessitates, right, that there is a child for whom the parents can make decisions about. And she got a similar reaction. I got a lot of pushback from abortion rights people because they did not like that I was using parental frames to talk about abortion. What Uh, did
3: that pushback look like?
6: It was basically, this really scares me because it's going to create a slippery slope to personhood. You know, I think there is every reason to be terrified of personhood. Because once a fetus is a person under the law at any point in pregnancy, it will trump the woman's rights over and over again. So it's not at all that the the fears around this are unfounded. It's that, what do we lose by not recognizing something that is very intuitive to so many people who've been pregnant before?
5: Jill and Greer were both mourning and feeling alone. They'd heard about each other in the world of legal scholars, but Greer was afraid to reach out. I see so many pro-life narratives within the stillbirth
6: community and the pregnancy loss community. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a, I don't, I'm not comfortable reaching out to Jill because, what if she actually thought, well, you know, I lost my kid, you didn't, you, you know, whatever killed your child, like I judge you. I'm not gonna, I don't want to, you know, I, I was afraid of being judged. Jill, I'm gonna read this. This is a very Interesting paragraph in an early email you sent. Oh no. Me.
5: <laughs> Jill was the first one to finally reach out. The personhood argument is
6: always difficult, but I really do think the pro choice side is overreacting. <laughs> it's just re- reality that women see their unborn children as children when the woman wants the baby she calls it a baby when she goes in for the ultrasound the doctor points out the baby's foot not the fetus's foot it is a baby to the woman even though the baby is still unborn denying this doesn't preserve abortion rights it just denies reality so
3: yeah it's a it's a little it's a little strong but i don't think it's wrong
5: <laughs> a friendship was born almost immediately
3: and I had always thought about it, but I don't know that I've ever necessarily really told you this, Greer, but it's just, it's amazing to me how similar our situations are. Greer gets it. Greer gets it.
5: Jill and Greer get in touch with each other on the anniversaries of their son's deaths. To them, it's important to honor the babies that they lost.
6: For a lot of people who are not, you know, seeped in one side or the other. You know, the fact that the abortion rights movement doesn't really have a way of thinking about fetal value is alienating because, you know, these are the average people who, you know, feel, you know, feelings of love for their children before they're born and experience loss that leads to profound grief, questioning what that grief is about. You know, she and I really Wanted to write a paper that dove into that exact tension. And we hadn't felt like we had seen that anywhere.
3: Because we hadn't seen it anywhere. (laughs) Jill and Greer wanted to find a more nuanced
5: way of thinking about abortion and the law. What do you do when
6: you completely support the bodily autonomy of people, but you also really value
5: fetal life? How do you make sense of that? The viability line in Roe v. Wade was supposed to be an answer to that balancing act. But Greer says that the justices fundamentally misunderstood something about pregnancy when they invented that line.
6: Viability essentially functions as this like, on-off switch, right? Where like the fetus or the baby is one thing one day and then a whole other thing the next, right? And that's just not at all how people experience pregnancy, right? Some people do have a moment where they feel like it's their baby. And for some people, it's the pregnancy test. For some people, it's the first time they feel the baby move. For some people, it's birth, right? Um, It's going to be different for every person.
5: The way Jill and Greer experienced pregnancy and loss was as parents.
6: My abortion was kind of like
5: the first major parenting decision I made in my whole life. They wanted to start there. So they turned to Greer's argument about abortion being a parental
6: right. If parents get to make these decisions after birth, they should be able to make it before birth.
5: That became the first building block for Jill and Greer's argument.
3: We're only talking about a parent's claim. We're not talking about a fetus having rights. They believe a person
5: is a person under the Constitution beginning at birth. But that doesn't mean that a fetus can't have value. They dove into the research around pregnancy loss to find out how people valued the pregnancies they lost.
3: And some of the answers were, I lost a pregnancy, I lost a baby, I lost, you know, my child who had this name, I even had a funeral, so there was like a range of valuations. It varies, it changes.
5: Other legal theories had tried to move the viability line across the timeline of a pregnancy to a fixed point. I mean, I
6: think it's very natural to think, as many people do, that pregnancy progresses over time on some sort of scale and at some point you have to draw a line. But, you know, our way of thinking is, well, what if we don't? What if we just allow
5: people to decide what it means to them? So, how do you do that in the law? It turns out, there is already somewhere in the law where people can tell the court how much a loss means to them.
3: It's this thing called tort law.
5: I always think of a pastry. I don't know Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I think tarts. Tarts. Yeah, Yeah, that's
3: why all my students are like, wait, why aren't we talking about desserts? Um, Okay, so (laughs) tort law, it's just personal injury law. Think the
5: signs you see on buses and benches saying things like, have you been in a car accident? Pregnancy loss actually turns up in tort law all the time. When it does, fetal value isn't tied to how far along in a pregnancy you are. It's about proving how much the pregnancy meant to the person who lost it. Take, for instance, if Jill had a miscarriage because someone hit her with their car.
3: I would be at trial trying to prove to the jury that, you know, I loved my son, and I have to try to prove to the jury that I've suffered a lot of damages. And then the jury awards an amount of damages that's specific to my loss.
5: The pregnant person defines their own loss to a court rather than the government defining it for them. The state cannot come in and say,
6: we lost something. Why? Because it's the parents' loss that matters.
3: It's an idea of presenting fetal value that doesn't threaten abortion rights. The judge and the clerk who introduced the viability
5: line told me in last week's episode that the law is all about drawing hard lines. Of course, they said, those lines are not always going to get it right for every single person's experience. That's just an unavoidable consequence of having a lawful society. But part of the reason they drew it that way was because they couldn't wrap their heads around why someone would need to have an abortion late in pregnancy.
6: Look, I too am very uncomfortable with people getting abortions for absolutely no reason in the third trimester, right? But also it's like, because I had an abortion the second trimester, I literally know that like no one would choose to do that. If you actually look at the people who are willing to do that, almost always, we're talking about people who have you know, experienced dramatic changes in their life, learned a horrible fetal anomaly, endured serious domestic violence, you know, really traumatic situations in which I think a lot of people actually would have a lot of sympathy for.
5: Jill and Greer don't claim to have the answer to abortion in America. But what they propose is maybe the law doesn't have to create one general rule for the infinitely complicated experience of pregnancy an abortion. If you don't mind me asking, how far along are you? When I talked to Greer for this story, she was pregnant — actually very pregnant.
6: I'm — gosh, it's always so weird, because it's like I'm eight months pregnant, I think, but I'm 35 weeks.
5: A few weeks later, I heard the news. She had a healthy baby girl.
6: Pregnancy is really hard. It's really hard. It requires enormous sacrifice of your body, of your emotions. So why do we not trust women, right? What are we worried about? And what if we just trust them? Um, And we trust them to feel grief. We trust them to make the decisions for birth. We trust them to make decisions for abortion, we trust them to just, we just trust them.
7: <laughs> More Perfect is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Gabrielle Burbet and me, Alyssa Eads. It was edited by Jenny Lawton and Emily Seiner with help from Julia Longoria. Fact check by Naomi Sharp. Special thanks this week to Jeannie Suk Gerson, Sam Moyne, Anna Sale, Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Dana Sessman, Joanna Shun, Erica Christensen, and Garen Marshall. The More Perfect team also includes Emily Botin, Whitney Jones, Salman Ahad Khan, and Emily Madre. The show is sound designed by David Herman and mixed by Joe Plord. Theme by Alex Overington, and episode art by Candace Evers. If you want more stories about the Supreme Court, go to your podcast app, hit subscribe, and scroll back for more than two dozen episodes. Supreme Court audio is from Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. Support from Our Perfect is provided by the Smart Family Fund and by listeners like you. Thanks for listening.